Welcome to the Fitness Pain-Free Show, where I help physical therapists learn how to get their clients out of pain and back to training the gym. My name is Dan Pope, and I'll be your instructor. I'm a physical therapist, coach, and fellow meetup. I love training just as much as you do and want to help you get all of your patients out of pain and back to the gym where they belong. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Fitness Pain-Free Show. Today we're going over how does sleep and stress affect your risk of injury. We're looking at a very cool study called Monitoring Training Loads and Perceived Stress in Young Elite University Athletes. Let's do it. So first and foremost, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for the support. You allowed me to do what I love for a living on the Fitness Pain Free Show as a coach, as a personal trainer, as a content creator for you guys. If you don't know me, my name is Dan Pope. I'm a physical therapist. I'm a coach, personal trainer, and a meathead. This is the Fitness Pain Free Show where we help coaches and physical therapists like you get your patients out of pain and back to training. If you're watching this on YouTube, please give me a like comment and subscribe to the channel if you're listening to this via podcast please consider giving me a positive rating and review so if you want to go that extra mile and support the channel even further please consider subscribing to my premium membership fitness pain for insiders it's a comprehensive educational resource and toolkit for the fitness and rehab professional so i think netflix but for trainers and physical therapists it's premium content from yours truly i make all the content on there and it's similar content to the show but way more in depth it's updated monthly. I've been updating this thing for the past five or so years, and there's a lot on there. There's 100 plus webinars, ebooks, and complete guides. You also have access to a private Facebook group to have all of your questions answered by me. You also get a chance to decide upcoming podcast topics. So if there's something you really want to learn more about, hear me go in depth about, let me know. I can do that. And you can get started for just $1 for a week-long trial. And after that, it's a recurring membership of $9.99, all right? You can cancel anytime, all right? I won't be uh, upset if you do. And if you want to get started, all you need to do is head to fitnesspainfree.com, click on the programs link, and then click on the Fitness Pain-Free Insiders Online Library and get started. So first and foremost, why do we care about sleep and stress and injury? right? I talk about this all the time. So a study like this is is wonderful confirmation bias, right? But basically, injuries are multifactorial. There are a lot of different things that are going to influence stress, right? So your technique is going to play a role. If I squat with my hips really far back, I put more stress on my spine and my hips. Maybe I put my hips more at risk for injury in comparison to my knees because when I send my hips back, the stress goes from knees to hips. If I send my knees forward and squat on my toes, it's going to put more stress on my knees. Maybe I'm going to influence the stress in that way and create a little bit more stress and potential injury at the knee if I do that. Training loads can affect your risk of injury. Training intensities, how heavy am I going, how often, can affect your injury risk. Your preparation, right? So if you're strong, maybe that's protective. So in the patellofemoral pain world, if you have strong quads, it's a little bit protective against injury, right? How about fitness? If you have a really high VO2 max, you're less likely to get hurt via Tim Gabbett's research from preseason to in-season, right? On top of that, how about training age? So if you've been doing Olympic weightlifting for years, right, and then you go into a CrossFit gym, you're probably going to do pretty well with the Olympic weightlifting segment just because you're pretty good at it already, right? On top of that, psychology, sociology plays a big role. And what we're going to be talking about today is this recovery piece, right? So sleep, stress, and mood and how that affects, or excuse me, affects your risk of injury. 
And lastly, nutrition probably, excuse me, probably plays a big role and then fatigue, right? And by fatigue, I mean basically how you feel towards the end of a training session or at the end of a training cycle, right? Maybe you had a really tough training cycle and you're maxing out at the end of, let's say, three months. And your body's just beat up, uh, maybe a little more at risk of injury at that point, right? So um, why else? So there is kind of this public perception the injuries that happen maybe just for one reason, one or two reasons, right? And it's our job as clinicians and coaches to, to educate folks, right? To let them know that it's a little more complex than that. And you probably want to look at a, a variety of different things if you want to reduce your risk of injury, right? So there are these folks out there that believe technique is everything, right? I have people tell me all the time, I think my technique was a little bit off and then I got hurt. And that might be a mother of newborn twins who hasn't slept in the past six months, right? So if you start asking them a few questions about, well, how's your sleep been recently? How your stress levels it's probably poor sleep right and then stress levels through the roof and it might not be that they actually had a technical problem although maybe the technical problem is very small but the stress is very high and that's a real reason right and then also from a, a physical therapist pers perspective i think sometimes we're biased right uh, some folks like pain science, some people like biomechanics, and then we're more apt to think that those issues are going to be the cause of your problem just because we kind of like those or maybe believe in those, right? Uh, so it's important that we challenge our own biases and just understand that uh, injury risk is multifactorial and maybe the thing that you like treating the most isn't the real problem, right? Uh, I've heard some physical therapists say, okay, well, the reason why I have neck pain is because you aren't sleeping enough. We need to get better sleep so that you're not going to hurt. And maybe that's part of it, but that also could be the athlete that goes in the gym and does handstand push-ups. And at the bottom of every single handstand push-up, they're smashing their head against the ground, right, and hurting their neck. And the real reason might be completely biomechanical because they have zero control and they're smashing their head. And I know this sounds silly, but I've seen this a lot, right? You see folks that have, let's say, neck pain, and you ask them a bunch of questions, and it does potentially look like they're overstressed, right? Have too much going on in their life, and they need to manage some of that. But then lo and behold, you watch them train, and they're smashing their head into the ground every time they do a handstand push-up. So we have to be kind of good detectives and figure out these real reasons for injury, right? And then lastly, I think that um, we just have to be objective generally. And, and this is hard to do because a lot of these things are subjective in nature. Like what is your perception of stress, right? What is stressful for one individual might not be as stressful for another, right? Then lastly, we have to make sure that we triage these things, right? Because if you have an individual in front of you that's a, a stress ball, that's not sleeping, has terrible technique, is super inconsistent with their training, there's a lot of variables going to influence the risk of injury, and we probably have to do a good job of triaging what are the most important ones to try to tackle and go through that list so we can get them better over the course of time. All right. So introduction to the study we're going over, this is called Monitoring Training Loads and Perceived Stress in Young Elite University Athletes. And we'll talk about this a little bit later. I actually like that we were looking at an athletic population just because most of the folks that I work with, right, uh, tend to be athletic people. As a person that loves training in the gym, maybe you're a recreational crossfitter, powerlifter, strength and conditioning kind of focused individual, you may not be competing on a regular basis, but you kind of train like you could compete at some point. So uh, I like that this study was in folks that like to work out hard, although generally speaking, the majority of people that you're working with might not be uh, athletes, although they may be, all right? Uh, but I don't like these studies that look at sedentary folks because that's not the type of person I work with, right? The type of person that you are. So here's the basis. 
physical stress is essential to get better, right? If I want to try to build my squat, deadlift, get better at a sport, I have to train. I need that physical stress. But if I do too much of that, that can also cause harm. It can cause an injury, right? Of course. And the other piece is that stress comes from other areas, not just physical stress. So you may have social stress, you have work-related stress, you have lifestyle-related stress, and athlete-coach relationship stress, right? And the highest stress in these university athletes, based on some of the research that this study was pointing to, is when athletes perform poorly, when they make mistakes, and when they perceive pressure from parents, coaches, and teammates. Now, I think this is really important, this perception idea. Like I said, um, the perception of stress is going to be very different from person to person. And the other thing is you can kind of coach someone not to care as much about what others think of their performance, right? So I think that's kind of an interesting point that uh, some uh, individuals have a really high um, regard to others in their life when maybe they don't need to have that, right? What other forms of stress are there? So there's academic workload stress, there's financial stress. And if we start to think about more stress in a regular population, work-related stress, that type of thing, although that's not as big in university setting, right? So the thought is if you have a poor stress recovery balance, that's going to lead to a couple different things. So for one, excuse me, one, a performance decrease. So if I'm doing too much and I'm not recovering properly, I might actually get worse which is a big problem because the reason why you train in the first place is to get better. If you do too much, that may send you in the opposite direction. And the other piece is that that may lead to more injury and also illness. And that's one of the things that this study is looking at. So like I said, are subjective stressors associated with counterproductive adaptations? So if I do too much stress, right, and we're looking at um, things like mood, um, perceived stress, sleep in this study, Will that have a negative effect on my performance? Would it have a negative effect on my health? Will it cause an injury or illness, right? And here's the thing. There's quite a bit of research prior uh, looking at this. Uh, the thing that's interesting about this study is that they looked over the course of four years, right? Pretty long period of time to see if there was a correlation. Um, prior research wasn't looking at that long of a time period. So this is, this is pretty good research. Quite a few athletes you'll see, they look over a pretty long time period. So basically the entirety of one individual's uh, college experience as an athlete, right? So another side note that I will say is that in prior research, if someone has increased perceived stress in their life, they will be at increased risk of injury, right? Spoiler alert. And on top of that, if you apply a stress management strategy, so you try to manage some of the stress in your life, that'll actually reduce your risk of injury, okay? And that's what's really cool because we're identifying what causes an injury and we're actually finding effective ways to reduce injury based on finding that, right? It's pretty cool. And the other thing that um, doing too much can lead to is burnout, right? And the other part that they were looking at in the study is when are these stressors most harmful? So what time during the academic year and what part of the sports season? Okay. So materials and methods. What about these subjects? Give me a little information about these subjects, Dan. Dan. Okay. No problem. There were 182 student athletes. 132 of those were male, or excuse me, 50 were female. So heavily skewed towards males, right? They're aged 18 to 22, uh, typical university age. And I don't know if they were from a variety of different universities, but basically there's something called the Lincoln University Sports Scholarship Program, and this is out in New Zealand, right? And they took athletes who were part of this program. 
There were young elite athletes and from the most sports participation to least sports participation, rugby, netball, hockey, cricket, basketball, rowing, athletics, and other, which the other was cyclists, triathletes, and throwers. So the most were rugby and the least were these other athletes like cyclists, triathletes, and throwers, right? So they're using a variety of different sports and they're lumping them all together, right? And this data was coming from 2014 to 2017, all right. And how are they calculating training loads? So this is how they've calculated training loads in other studies, mostly coming from Tim Gabbett originally. So they take a look at total volume, right, of the session. So let's say I'm training for one hour long, right? And then they want to quantify how challenging that session was. What was the intensity? And they'll use a zero to 10 scale. 10 out of 10 is the hardest possible uh, practice you can imagine. Zero to 10 is super easy. And they'll just multiply the two, right? So let's say it's 60 minutes times a five out of 10, and they'll get a number for that, right? It's a way to quantify how challenging that session was, okay? And like I said, this is a valid measurement from other studies. But the one thing that I question is, does this carry over really well to the strength and fitness world, right? Because I could have like a 500 number workout, right? And one is all upper body stress, and I could have a 500 number workout that's all lower body stress, right? So I may find that if I have a big spike in training volume to the shoulder, right, I could be more at risk for injury. But if the only way I'm calculating acute to chronic workload ratio is via this volume by intensity, it's not taking into account stress in specific areas, okay? So just keep that in mind, okay? And the other piece that they were calculating was acute to chronic workload ratio. Again, mostly from Tim Gabbett. Basically, they're looking at what you've been doing over the past week, right? They average out the total amount of training in a given week, and they compare that to what you've used to been done, what you have been doing for the prior four weeks, right? And they're looking to see if there's a big difference in what you're doing currently versus what you've been prepared for. All right. Prior research has shown that there's a, a big correlation between having these spikes, so big jumps in the acute to chronic workload ratio, doing too much uh, compared to what you're prepared for, and that increasing your risk of injury. All right. So in this study, they were looking at mood disturbances, perceived stress, sleep disruption, and they're using subjective measures in order to measure this. And they utilize a phone app with a five-point scale to look at these. So for mood, a number one would indicate you are very stressed, and a five would indicate you have no stress, right? So that's what mood means in this study. Sleep quality, one would be poor, and five would be very good, all right? And the sleep, the sleep quality measure was not sleep duration, and they'll go over that a little bit later, okay? And spoiler alert, but sleep quality didn't correlate with injury, at least in this study, okay? For energy levels, a one was extremely low, and a five was high slash excellent. For muscle soreness, one was extremely sore, five was no soreness. And then for academic pressure, one is academic pressure high, five, no academic pressure, right? They calculated sleep duration in hours and minutes, and they also had a readiness to train number. And this was based on subjective measures of mood, state, sleep quality, energy level, muscle soreness, academic stress, and then they calculated the score. And this is a proprietary way of assessing stress. So they didn't really go into the specifics of how they did this, but that was another number they looked at. Okay. 
So how do they define an injury? Just because this is important. Injury definition is very different from study to study, right? At least in this study, the definition of injury was a physical complaint or observable damage to body tissue produced by the transfer of energy experienced or sustained by an athlete during training or competition, regardless of whether medical attention was received. And 70% of these injuries were diagnosed by a physio or a physician which makes me feel a little bit better because a lot of the injuries in this study are actually quantified by an expert, right? As opposed to people deciding whether or not they have an injury. Uh, with that being said, in other studies, they'll quantify an injury based on maybe time loss from sport. Um, that wasn't the case here. So it would have been nice if they broke that down a little bit more so. And what you'll see later on is that they had a pretty high risk of injury. And maybe that's because of the injury definition. I'm not really sure. An illness was defined as a physical or psychological complaint or manifestation by an athlete not related to injury causing an impairment in competition or training, regardless of whether the athlete received medical attention. Okay, so you got sick. What were the results of this study? So in terms of perceived energy, remember folks were writing down how they felt energy-wise from a scale of 1 to 5. So perceived energy started high at the start of a school year, right? You're fresh, you're going right back to school for the first time, and it dropped throughout the semester, and it recovered during holiday breaks, right? And it was particularly low during the first exam period, and that kind of makes sense. When you have an exam, you're probably going to be a little bit tired. You're studying a lot. How about muscle soreness? It was highest at the start of the year. And I'm guessing this is because the start of the year was the preseason, and this is when people are coming back and just training a lot. And the other part is that it gradually increased throughout the semester, which is a little confusing to me because if it was highest during the start of the year, you know, it doesn't make sense it would go higher, right, throughout the semester. But that's what the study said. So I'm, I'm a little confused. But uh, what's kind of makes sense is that it recovered during breaks and holidays. And this is really a trend you're going to see across all of these, right? You have a break and things get better, right? Um, mood scores and perceived stress. So the best mood scores, right, the lowest stress was at the start of each semester. So before everything got started rolling, mood was very high, right? And the scores were worst at examination periods, and they recovered during holidays and times off. Okay? How about sleep quality? Sleep quality was highest in times of low stress, basically mirrored mood scores. They were worst around exam periods, and they recovered during holiday and break. How about sleep duration? So sleep duration mirrored sleep quality data. And basically, it was best during holidays and breaks, right? When people don't have a whole lot going on. And lastly, perceived academic stress was worse during final examination periods. And that makes sense. You got to get ready for your exams. So what were the predictors of injury? Measures of mood, energy, academic stress, sleep duration, all predicted injury. Pretty cool, right? Lower levels of mood sleep duration, and academic stress, or lower levels of energy were able to predict injury. And here's what they found. In terms of mood, for every unit decrease in mood, and remember, it was from 1 to 5, you had a 10% increase in injury risk. Okay? Pretty interesting. So if you had a 5-point difference, that might be a 50% increase in, in injury risk, which is, you know, reasonable. That's kind of interesting. You can see that, right? Makes sense to see that number. And for every unit decrease in sleep duration, you had a 6% increase in injury risk. Now, they didn't go into this because 
a unit decrease in sleep duration doesn't make sense. Was that an hour? Was that 30 minutes? Was that one minute? They didn't expand. So I'd probably have to reach out to the authors to see what they were talking about there. But for every unit decrease in sleep duration, they found it was about a 6% increase in injury risk. When I went back and looked into this, it looked like a unit was maybe like 20 minutes or so, but it's just hard to tell based on the data they gave us. For every unit increase in academic pressure, that was a 9% increase in injury risk, which is very interesting, right? So mood, sleep, and academic pressure all are going to substantially increase your risk of injury. So what do they find? Basically what I just said, mood, sleep duration, but not quality, all right? The quality did not correlate with injury and academic pressure were the strongest contributors to injury. Okay. How about injury and illness? So this is what was kind of interesting to me. The overall incidence of injury and illness, so they combined injuries and illness together, okay? The incidence was 15.6 plus or minus 3.9 injuries per 1,000 hours of training, okay? So if you followed any of my um, lectures on injuries in the fitness world, strength and fitness world, a lot of that is showing an injury risk around three injuries per every thousand hours of training. So quite a bit less in comparison to what they were seeing in this study, right? If you take the illnesses out of this equation, there are approximately 14 injuries for every 1,000 hours of participation, right? The incidence of injury was higher over the preseason, so that's up to week six. So basically, when you start the preseason up to week six, the rate of injury was much higher, actually 30.7 plus or minus 3.9 injuries per 1,000 hours of training. And after the preseason, it dropped down to 10.3 plus or minus 1.9 injuries per 1,000 hours of training. And that was for any other time during the rest of the year. So basically, the preseason was about three times more likely to give you an injury in comparison to the rest of the season. And this makes total sense to me. I see this all the time in, in most sports, right? I think high school might be one of the worst, but you have a whole bunch of athletes that really are not prepared for a given sports season. And then the coaches feel they have to get these athletes in shape. So they take a bunch of people that are out of shape and they just try to whip them into shape by doing way too much, right? which may actually get people in shape, right? I, I'm not trying to deny that. But the other part is that the risk of injury goes way up, all right? And here's some pretty clear evidence to show that. You're taking athletes that aren't prepared for something and you're throwing way too much at them to get them in shape and the risk of injury skyrockets with that, okay? Coaches need to understand that they're doing that, that that's what they're doing with their athletes, okay? Illnesses accounted for approximately 14% of the loss of training. Illness was highest during times of highest stress, and that was just before and during semester one examinations. Okay, makes sense. So how about training loads and risk of injury? So a sudden increase to an acute to chronic workload over the first nine weeks of preseason was associated with an increased incidence of injury and illness, right? And we just saw that in the prior slide. Basically, you were three times as likely to get hurt in preseason than the rest of the season, all right? And this probably does represent a pretty big jump in acute to chronic workload ratio, because I imagine a lot of those athletes were not preparing as well as they should in their off season. And then the preseason was just a lot more than what they're prepared for, right? This was also kind of interesting. During the competitive season, increases in training loads resulted in no further increases in the incidence of illness or injury. So basically throughout the rest of the training year, if you had a spike that didn't increase your risk of injury, 
right? And part of the thought for that is that maybe fitness is protective. Maybe once you build up a certain amount of fitness, then you're going to be protected against those spikes. So maybe that's what's going on. The other thing that's interesting is that at least because of Tim Gabbett's research, this acute to chronic workload ratio has become so popular that people kind of think it may be the be all end all of injuries. And here's the thing, maybe it isn't because, you know, what we just found is things like stress and mood are actually pretty good predictors of injury. Whereas acute to chronic workload ratio is not a great predictor of injury, at least when someone's already in season, right? So, you know, that's, that's important to take into account just because these, these acute chronic workload ratios are probably important, but these other variables, you know, at certain times of the year, maybe even more important, right? All right. So what were some of the limitations of this study? So first and foremost, they kind of utilize a new method of quantifying sleep, mood, stress, et cetera, all those excuse me, variables I just talked about. And the reason why they did this is for ease of use, right? You have a whole bunch of college kids. You don't want to give them 10 questionnaires with 300 questions. You're just not going to have great participation, okay? So I didn't choose to use some of these subjective measures based on prior research. They made up their own. Okay, so this method of checking someone's sleep, mood, etc., is not backed by other research like some other subjective measurements are. Okay, so major limitation there. And the other uh, limitation that uh, the authors talked about was was the information input by students accurately, right? And the other one they said was, was this excuse me, was this information put in in a timely manner? So basically, they're relying on the students to be good at putting in accurate information, and, and maybe they aren't. I don't know. They're just assuming that the students are potentially doing a bad job, right? The other big limitation, and and I think this is going to be really important for for our discussion, basically, is that they use elite athletes, right? They're looking at people that were eighteen to twenty two years old in very particular sports, right? Is this applicable to other populations? So how about less elite people? Is it going to be more applicable in older folks, right? Folks that I tend to work with. How about younger folks, younger than this, right? How about varied stressors, right? So academic stress is going to increase your risk of injury. Well, how about work stress, right? Life stress. How about those variables? So we don't really know. Um, I thought this was a phenomenal study and I thought it had some really good clinical takeaways for us. The big thing is that mood, perceived stress, energy level, and sleep are important variables in the injury equation. And if you're, let's say a coach, they're worth monitoring over the course of a season, right? And they're also probably worth investigating as a physical therapist. So when someone comes through the door and you're trying to treat whatever problem they have, and you're not having success, or someone has recurrent injuries, it's probably worthwhile to figure out why this, why this is going on. And really, this perceived stress, mood, energy level, and sleep stuff could be one of the major reasons why people keep getting hurt in the future. And if we don't address those, then sometimes people might not get to the point where they can train without hurting themselves again, right? So I've made a bunch of other videos about this in the past, but I'll kind of go over what I tend to do as a clinician. I do this for my own training, and then I also try to give it to my athletes over the course of time. Like I said, especially if we're not making the progress that we want, all right? I will say it's not perfect. This is all anecdotes for myself. I don't have any research on this. It's just my interpretation of the literature, trying to kind of put that into my training and other people's trainings to, to keep them a little bit safer, 
right? Um, I collect a lot of data about my training, right? And every single day before I train, I give myself a readiness score, all right? Now, this number isn't perfect, but it's really easy to quantify. I've had some folks use, let's say, heart rate variability, like a whoop strap, okay? Um, you have some individuals that might use grip strength to see your readiness. Uh, but basically, you're trying to figure out your mood, your level of energy, your stress, and factor that all into how you feel right at the moment, okay? And you factor that on a scale of 0 to 10. And for me, on average, I'm about a 6. If I'm a 7 to 8, I am dying to train. If I'm a 4 to 5, I'm feeling pretty beat up and run down, okay? I also try to write down my sleep duration. How much sleep did I get? Seven and a half, seven, six, six and a half. Um, I'm a newer dad, so my sleep is more variable now. And I think that's an important thing to note, right? The other thing that I write down is my nutrition. And I'll write down my calories and a little bit about my hydration status, right? So if I'm chronically under eating, that's a sign that I probably shouldn't go as hard in the gym, right? I'm not able to recover as well. And if I am peeing a yellow laser beam, then I'm concerned is going to melt the hole in the porcelain in the toilet. I'm not super hydrated. I probably need to drink some water and maybe can't push as hard in my training session. And lastly, I do calculate my acute to chronic workload ratio. So basically, I write how long the session was. So let's say it's 60 minutes. And I give it a number on a scale of 0 to 10 about how hard it is. And I get a number. And the big thing is that you want to try to stay consistent with your programming. And that goes from week to week, all right? It also goes from month to month. So when you're changing your training program, you want these to be small changes month to month, right? And if you look at some of the classic research by Gabbett, you don't want to make a change that's greater than about uh, 0.8 to 1.3 per week, right? Um, anything greater than about a 1.5 will potentially increase your risk of injury. Although in this study, that wasn't the case. So in season, when people had a, a spike that was greater than that 1.5 times what they're used to doing on a regular basis, that didn't correlate. But I think it's probably a wise thing to think about for your own training and your athletes training for the most part. Try to stay in line with those numbers. And then here's the thing, you know, uh, it, you know, a lot of what I do is going to, to depend on what my goals are in the gym, okay? Let's say I'm in a training cycle, and the big goal for that training cycle is high intensity. I'm trying to push high loads, heavy weights, okay? And I find that that day, I feel bad. I have low energy levels. I have a lot of stress. I didn't eat well, right? I didn't sleep well. Maybe my son woke me up in the middle of the night, and I had to give him a bottle of milk, get him back to sleep, whatever it was. I'm feeling bad. I had a lot of work going on. It's been very stressful, you know, lots of bills, financial stress, whatever it may be. I probably have to reduce something within my training, okay? If the goal is high loads for the training cycle, I might start cutting out sets, right? So I know that the high load sets are most important, at least in this cycle. I'm going to start cutting things out that aren't associated with that. because so I can still um, meet the goals of that month and take away some of the less important variables. So I might cut out a few sets or I might cut out a few exercises. Let's say I hit my top set of deadlifts for the day and I'm supposed to do another 45 minutes of accessories. I might just do another 15 minutes and call it and leave the gym. Okay. Now, if I am doing poorly, obviously I want to make sure that I 
alter my training for that day. Sometimes life happens and there's nothing you can do about it. But if you are noticing over the course of time, you're just tired, low energy, whatever it is, we have to improve those deficits, okay? We have to figure out what's going on in your nutrition and fix it. Are you eating you know, 2,500 calories every single day, but you require 3,000 to 3,500? Yeah, well, if you're not eating enough, you might cause a whole bunch of small tweaks, injuries, whatever it is, just because you don't give yourself the fuel you need to improve, right? If you're only getting six hours of sleep per night, of course you're getting hurt, right? Get your sleep a little bit better. And lastly, if you're having a lot of stress, we know, like I said earlier, if you employ some stress management strategies, and this is uh, another topic outside of today's lecture, uh, we can improve upon that, all right? And if you have too much total stress, maybe that means you need to have a big change in your life. There's so many ways to alter the amount of stress you have in your life, right? So we can have some sort of way to protect our body when stress levels are high, and we can also potentially mitigate some of the stress in our bodies, right? So lastly, I just want to say thank you guys so much for listening and watching if you're on YouTube. Um, I'm not lying when I say that you guys supporting me is allowing me to live my dream. It's really cool. I really appreciate it, right? If you're looking for this study, it's called Monitoring Training Loads and Perceived Stress in Young Elite University Athletes. It's in the journals Frontiers of Physiology. It was published in 2019 by Hamlin et al. Again, thank you for the support. If you're watching this on YouTube, please give me a thumbs up. Leave a comment. Tell me what you think about this. I think this is super duper important for coaches, clinicians, and the like. And consider subscribing. That's going to help me a ton. If you're listening to the podcast version of this, please, please, please give me a positive rating and review. And that's it for now. Thank you, guys.